0: What goes on in your mind really determines and shapes your experience of the external world. And I've applied that very much in my work with patients because I just find over and over again that the root causes of illness are often in the mental, emotional sphere and not in the physical body, or they're like they're in both. But conventional medicine has so ignored that non physical part of ourselves, and I think that's a great limitation. Science and medicine in our part of the world are totally dominated by materialism. You know, a philosophy that says that the only thing that's real is that which can be seen and touched and measured and that if you see a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Non-physical causation of physical events doesn't compute. It's not allowed for. So, you know, in hypnosis, there are so many demonstrations like uh, you can touch a person with a finger and you have them believe it's a piece of red hot metal and if they're in a deep trance, they get an actual blister. I mean, that is non-physical causation of a physical event if you try to get a doctor to look at that or a scientist, oh it's just a curious thing, it doesn't have any meaning. To me the essence of science is open-minded observation. You know that's where you start.
1: That's Dr. Andrew Weil, and this is the Ritual podcast. <laughs> Roll podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. It is I, Rich Roll, your host. Good to have you because today, in the words of the late great Timothy Leary, it's time to turn on, tune in, and drop out. Well, maybe not the drop out part, maybe skip that step. Anyway, because today's guest, a sort of acolyte or disciple of Mr. Leary and Richard Alpert, otherwise known as Ram Dass from his days at Harvard and Harvard Medical School in the mid-1960s, is none other than medical mystic Dr. Andrew Weil, the OG of integrative medicine, a true pioneer of health, a legend in the realm of mind-body healing, and a man who has spent essentially the last 50 plus years studying and evangelizing holistic wellness, underappreciated healing modalities, medicinal plants, and the reform of medical education and practice. Named one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time Magazine, among a zillion other accolades, Dr. Weil is also a New York Times bestselling author of 15 books and the founder and director of the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. As an entrepreneur, he's the founder of matcha tea brand, Matcha Curry, and a partner in True Food Kitchen, a chain of something like 35 healthy food restaurants located all across the US. I've been to a few, they're really good. And this man is a wonderful gift. The conversation is coming right up, but first. We're brought to you today by Momentus. and has become my go-to to ensure my body is supplied with energy for a proper recovery and function. Momentus products are simply the best in the industry, which is why they're used by over 90% of NFL teams, by Olympians, Tour de France champs, and world-class athletes across every sport. With all the BS in the supplement world, I trust Momentus's industry-leading quality standards and quality. Try Momentus for yourself by going to livemomentus.com/richroll From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com/slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by a very exciting brand new sponsor: Go. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. Okay, Andrew Weil. So I distinctly remember him being on the cover of Time Magazine in the late 1990s and then again in 2005. So I guess this guy has occupied a space in my consciousness for decades. But what I didn't fully appreciate or know until I read Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind, which also then prompted me to dig much deeper into Dr. Weil, is the extent to which this guy deserves a lot of credit for helping mainstream so many trends, ideas and practices that he's been advocating dating back to the 1970s. Simple things like healthy eating, like breath work, to a variety of alternative healing modalities clinical applications for psychedelics, even the legalization of marijuana that way back in the day when he was talking about this stuff, it was just anathema and he was ridiculed by the medical establishment. Well, he's here today. Culture has definitely caught up to him and he's led an extraordinary life. So today he's gonna tell us all about it from the counterculture days at Harvard to his convictions as a healer to his quest to reinvent healthcare. We cover it all. It's a glorious experience. So here we go. This is me and Dr. Andrew Weil. It's a pleasure to meet you. It's an honor. Thank you for taking the time. Sure. I'm excited to be here with you. Um, I don't even know where to begin this other than to say, you've been in this game for a long time. You're a pioneer and icon in the integrative medicine space. And so much of what you're about, you were so far ahead of the curve, like culture is only now even just beginning to yeah. catch up to so many other things you were talking about in the late 60s, yeah. throughout the 70s. Um, when you were kind of like this iconoclast, I guess in some cases, you still maybe considered that? I, I don't know, so. I feel I like you're, so. you're welcomed <laughs> you know, now in a way that, that it probably didn't feel that way
0: uh, you know, in the earlier stages of your career. Well, if I cease being controversial, I think
1: I'm not doing my job. <laughs> right, uh. there is, there's a little bit of a, I'm interested in that spirit, right? Yeah. There's a little bit of a punk rock thing yeah, going on definitely. here. Because you've been pushing the envelope right. from day one. From what you were writing, you know, in the Crimson at Harvard, yeah. and all the kind of stuff that dates back to you being in your like late teens and early twenties,
0: definitely. And the first book that I wrote in 1972, The Natural Mind, uh, you know, I, I think really I went back and read some parts of it, and it really predicts what's happening now with mm. psychedelics and uh, you know the positive change that this can bring to our society. But for a long time, uh, you know, I've written and said the same thing really for almost 50 years. Yeah. And for the early part of that time, nobody paid attention to me. And then I got a larger and larger following in the general public, but none of my medical colleagues paid any attention to me. Right. And then that changed in the early 1990s. And now, you know, integrative medicine is becoming mainstream and it's very gratifying to watch.
1: Yeah, it's gotta be, it's gotta feel like you've been vindicated. I mean, there's still so much work to be so done much, obviously. But it
0: feels like the culture has caught up with right. me in a lot of respects. Right.
1: So it must be challenging to check your ego a little bit with that, <laughs> <laughs> right? You're like, I've been screaming about this stuff forever.
0: Well, it seems so obvious to me. The uh-huh. things that I've been advocating, you know, talking about. You know, one of my main uh, principles is that the body can heal itself. That's hardly mm. news. I mean, that's Hippocrates said that in the fifth century BC. It's mm-hmm. just that it hasn't been much paid attention to in modern medicine.
1: Yeah. Well, I feel like so much of of your perspective was well informed by all the traveling that you did as Definitely. a young person, right? Yeah. Seeing parts of the world that were relatively inaccessible at the time to give you a broader perspective yeah. on different modalities of health and healing. I
0: had a very, I had I ha- had a wonderful um, opportunity that came my way by chance when I was seventeen. Uh, I I won a scholarship to an experimental school that took. Uh, a group of twenty two students and six faculty people around the world for a year, and we lived with native mm-hmm. families, so I did this a year between high school and college. Mm-hmm. Uh, that changed my life and I think traveling has been so important to me and to be in other cultures and to see that there are other ways of interpreting reality, mm-hmm. uh, incredibly valuable. I think that's one of the problems I see in our society. Uh, you know, We're a big isolated country and many people have no awareness of what's out there. I, I right. saw some statistic a few years ago that I think it was fewer than 40% of members of Congress had passports. Mm. I mean, amazing. Really? Yeah. And George W. Bush had never been out of the country when he became president. I mean, how is that possible? He was the son of a president and he'd never been out of the country. I that mean, does seem impossible. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think there's no substitute for getting perspectives of other, of other societies yeah. and other cultures. I mean, cultures. the
1: most interesting and introspective people that I know are people that are well-traveled yeah. and particularly people that took the opportunity to travel when they were young and yeah. kind of, you know, their minds were still being formed and they weren't calcified around their worldviews. Yeah
0: yeah and then, after uh, I finished my medical training i then for a number of years i I traveled a lot in Latin America I lived in mm-hmm. Latin America for yeah. a number of years studying plants and drugs and other ways of healing and then also in Africa and asia and so that's that's just been very much a part of my life yeah.
1: Well, I'm obsessed with Harvard in the mid '60s. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I just can't get enough of, of of learning about what an interesting time uh, it was in in Cambridge with everybody from Richard Alpert to Timothy Leary, of course, uh, Skinner, who I know you spent time yeah. with. Was there a sense that it was special then?
0: Well, Harvard has always had a sense of being special. I remember there was a there was a novel written by a faculty wife at Harvard called We Happy Few. Mm-hmm. So there was always this sense, you know, that we were this elite. But you know, frankly, Harvard was getting passed by when the '60s revolution started. You know, that was all going mm-hmm. on in Berkeley uh, and the West Coast, and it was a few years before it, it got to Harvard and Harvard started to catch up with what was happening.
1: Uh huh. Did you have Access to Leary and I did. I I was
0: I had become interested in uh, psychedelics. I'd read about them right before I entered Harvard as a freshman in 1960, and uh, I. Asked about you know, how I could find out about these, and I had a uh, a psychology professor who told me that there was uh, you know these two guys in the social relations department who were starting to study these drugs. Mm-hmm. So I went over and met Leary at his office and had a conversation. This was in about 1960 or 61 before he really he was just getting going mm-hmm. on the studies he was doing. Um, he was he was fascinating. He had a twinkle in his eye. He was like a you know he was a kind of Irish storyteller, uh, very charming. And and he genuinely thought that these drugs, these were the most interesting things he'd ever come across. And he thought they had Mm -hmm. the potential to completely change society. And he had no sense that this was gonna stir up any kind of opposition. Mm.
1: Yeah, it really was a culture clash though between the administration and these, you know, wild eyed professors who were, you know. (laughs) way out on a limb with some of the ideas they wanted to explore.
0: Well, one of the ideas that they wanted to explore was that everybody was playing games and that there was the professor game and the university game. Well, the university didn't like hearing, you know, that kind of stuff. So Uh I think it was inevitable that there would
1: be a big clash between them. Right. And you, you then, you know, began your experimental phase around that time as well.
0: Well, also, uh, I had read uh, Aldous Huxley's book, The Doors of Perception, mm-hmm. about mescaline, and by chance, he was at MIT. In that fall semester that I entered Harvard and he gave a series of lectures on visionary experience that were broadcast on the Harvard radio station. And I listened to them and I wrote him a letter and asked him, where could I get mescaline? Uh And he wrote back and gave me the name of a chemical company. Um, And anyway, eventually I was able to get mescaline and I experimented with it myself and uh, with friends over the next few years. And that that was, you know, before almost anyone I knew had ever tried those. Right, right, right.
1: Do you uh, you know, you probably know Deborah Zekely. Sure, oh yeah, she's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, she's incredible. I spoke at Rancho La Puerta several years ago and I had her on the podcast. But when I was there, I kind of dug into the history of that mm-hmm. place and what I was starting to learn about Edmund, her late Pretty husband. Pretty wild. I mean, Huxley used to go down there right. and it just sounded like a wild yeah. time
0: yeah. at that moment. And talk about healthy aging. I mean, she's one of the most she's incredible. She's 99? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really impressive.
1: Yeah, I mean, so interesting how that intersection of experimentation with psychedelics, with kind of this emergent wellness culture. Yeah you know, in in its infancy to look back on that and to see kind of the fruits of that labor and, right. and the way the culture has kind of embraced these things now yeah. is crazy. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's taken a very long time, but uh, you know, I, I uh, was just saying uh, to someone yesterday that in the past few years, I was doing a lot of traveling and lecturing around the country and in other countries. And no matter what the subject was, I was talking about whether it was healthy aging, nutrition, uh, the questions I would get asked would be about psychedelics. Mm-hmm. That's and what I, everyone
1: wants to talk to you everyone about. Wants to talk. And then I saw yeah.
0: last, I think it was this month or last month, Vogue had a cover story on psilocybin mushrooms. Mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> right? <laughs> that, that, is, yeah. that is mainstream.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. It's tricky for me. Um, I mean, listen, you know, just to, Preface what I'm going to say. I certainly acknowledge the tremendous amount of science that's occurring right now in terms of healing modalities with respect to PTSD and depression and all the kind of clinical applications that we're discovering are appropriate for these substances. Um, but I'm always challenged with how to square that with the fact that I'm a recovery guy. Like I've yeah, yeah, been in yeah. recovery for a long time, right. um, and you know, within that. The construct of that community, it's a very binary thing. Like, you don't use substances. I never used uh, psychedelic substances. I acknowledge, you know, these benefits that we're we're now seeing. It definitely fucks with my mind a little bit, (laughs) you know, because I think, should I try that? And I've got a friend who's like a longtime sober guy, like, big book banger, like, all the way in. And he went and did a um, supervised, uh, psilocybin experience mm-hmm. with I don't know you know whoever like the the you know the the kind of experts are in this field, and it was profound for him,
0: well, you know these aren't really substances that you use in the way that people use alcohol mm. or tobacco or cocaine uh you know they're things that people may take as a, on a single occasion. Uh, and have some profound uh, experience from them. In my sense, is that psychedelics—they uh, can show you possibilities. They don't give you any information about how to maintain the possibilities, and mm-hmm. then you have to work in other ways to find out how to yeah. extend and maintain that. So they're not—they're not really things that you incorporate into your daily life,
1: right? Although you know, with the microdosing and all yeah, that that's kind of stuff, right, right. there's a lot of that going on. Sure. I, I guess my only reticence around the conversation is that the more it gets talked about, the more, the more mainstream the kind of acceptance of it is, the more likely it is that, that people will be using it in ways that they shouldn't be.
0: Sure, uh, I think that's, that's always a danger. Yeah. And, and the, which is too bad, because I think the, the potential of them is really only realized if people have the right expectations and use them in the right circumstances. And otherwise, I think it, they're, you just fritter away their yeah. potential.
1: When you reflect back on on those early experiences with psychedelics and and kind of pair that with all the travel that you did, I mean, how do you think about the impact of that on on the kind of broader perspective that you've brought to the health conversation? Yeah, you know,
0: first of all, I don't use these things anymore. I mean, they were things that I used in the past and. Uh, on that book that I wrote the Natural Mind, Alan Watts wrote a blurb for it, and one of the things he said was you know that the, when you, when you when you get the message, you can hang up the telephone uh-huh. uh, and I think that really applies to these experiences so there 's a lot of stuff I learned from them i don 't really feel the need to repeat those mm. experiences, but uh, one thing that I saw very powerfully is that what goes on in your mind really determines and shapes your experience of the external world. Uh, and I've applied that very much in my work with patients because I, I, I just find over and over again that the root causes of illness are often in the mental emotional mm-hmm. sphere and not in the physical body or they're like they're in both. But conventional medicine has so ignored that, yeah. that non-physical part of ourselves. And I think that's a great limitation. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I think, one of the things I appreciate about you the most is just that, that level of cognizance and emphasis that you put on the mind and your willingness to you know, delve deep into the nature of consciousness. Yeah. And, and these are just anathema in conventional <laughs> medical practice.
0: Yeah, it just doesn't compute. I took a, a, one of the most interesting courses I ever took was in medical hypnosis uh, at Columbia University it was for physicians. Um, I just, I learned so many fascinating things there. And as a result of that, I made mind body medicine a, a major component of the integrative medicine curriculum that I developed. And And I very frequently refer patients to mind body practitioners, whether Mm -hmm. that's uh, hypnotherapists or visualization practitioners or any one of a number of other modalities, because I find these things to be incredibly effective, cost effective, I mean, even fun for both practitioner and patient. And And relatively
1: free of risk.
0: Totally, and they are so underutilized in Mm -hmm. medicine. And I, I remember once I was challenged to a public debate Uh, by Arnold Relman, who was the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, And it was a very publicized event. And I mean, I have never met a more closed minded uh, person. He Uh said, his position was all you have to do is show me the evidence, you know, you show me the evidence, blah, blah, blah. So anything you'd show him, he'd say, oh, well, that's not evidence, you know. And one of the questions that I asked him, I said that, you know, the best, research area of what I do is mind-body interactions. There's been 30 years of of studies on that. And, and yet these uh, modalities are so mm-hmm. underutilized, what would you do to increase their use? And his response was, there is no evidence for mind-body interactions. So, you know, <laughs> I don't know what you can do Right? With that. Yeah, I mean, how are <laughs> you,
1: how are you? Yeah, there's a a profound hubris around the scientific method. Science is truth, science is fact, but, that overlooks the fact that it's a method. Yeah, It's not a fact in and of itself. It's, it's a means of approximating truth. It's a way to approach or discover truth, but it's also not the sole method and it's flawed. And I think there's so much arrogance around, this is the way that we do it. And that kind of approach is very, Dualistic or binary, in that you know it's controlling for this variable or or, or this right. and that, and obviously we've made un, you know I'm not dismissing it. It's like no, well, this right. is the this is the the engine of progress, of course, but it overlooks the holistic nature of the human body and the True. interplay between all of these very sensitive systems.
0: And science and medicine and our part of the world are totally dominated by materialism, you know, a philosophy that says that. The only thing that's real is that which can be seen and touched Mm -hmm. and measured. And that if you see a change in a physical system, the cause has to be physical. Non-physical causation of physical events doesn't compute. It's not allowed for. So, you know, in hypnosis, there are so many demonstrations like uh, you can touch a person with a finger and, and you have them believe it's a piece of red hot metal. And if right. they're in a deep trance, they get an actual blister. I mean, that is non physical causation of a physical event. So, in if you try to get a doctor to look at that or a scientist, oh, it's just a curious thing. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have any meaning.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, that kind of. Uh makes me think of your interesting ideas around the placebo effect yeah. and, and the way that we kind of think about that backwards.
0: Fortunately, that that's one of the things that's changing now, which is makes me very happy, mm-hmm. but the still the, the most common ways I hear the word placebo used are in phrases like, how do you know that's not just a placebo effect? And the most interesting word there is just, or we have to rule out the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. That's what we want to rule in. You know, the placebo response is pure healing from within, yeah. you know, mediated by the mind, unmixed up with the direct effects of treatment, which are likely to be harmful.
1: Yeah. I think I've heard you talk about um, the fact that in every, every kind of double blind trial. Yes. It, uh, yeah. If you look at the placebo group, there's always a few people that have experienced the result as All if they had the taken changes, the changes, exactly. <laughs> and that's the most interesting thing. <laughs> Amazing of the whole thing. that any change we yeah. can
0: produce with a pharmacological agent can be exactly mimicked in at least some people some of the time by a mind mediated mechanism. So fortunately the change that's happened, and this is the result of these new brain imaging technologies is that now, now you can show that certain parts of the brain are active when people have placebo responses and this makes it accessible you know, and real mm-hmm. uh, to people. So I think placebos are being taken much more seriously.
1: Right, because now the imaging science has caught up and neuroscience has progressed to the point where they can provide an explanation that makes sense to the conventional exactly. kind of community.
0: And the same thing's happened with mm-hmm. meditation. You know, there've been a tremendous number right. of studies of, of very long time series meditators showing different activity in, in different brain areas as a mm-hmm. result. So the fact that you know a meditation practice can actually physically change the brain, I mean, that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. But within that, there's this, Profound, deep appreciation for the mystical. Yes. Right? Yeah. Which is like my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) Oh, good. Yeah. And I suspect that was in part informed by all these shamans and, you know, various healing practitioners that you've experienced over the decades in South America and Asia, et cetera.
0: One of the attitudes that I just. Can't stand is that when scientists believe that it's their job to make mystery go away, you know it seems to me mystery is an essential aspect of the universe, mm-hmm. uh, and that you have to appreciate that and wonder at it. Mm-hmm. Terence McKenna I once heard say that you know the bigger you build the fire, the more you're aware of the extent of the darkness, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that's true. And I think that our experience at the heart of our experience is mystery That's stuff that we can appreciate, but we can't really understand with our mind. Right,
1: so how do you get a typical doctor to develop a broader <laughs> appreciation for that. You know, it's like, it doesn't, how does that work? You know, I mean, that's kind of at the crux of your True. whole thing.
0: Well, I train doctors, you know, at yeah. the center I have at the University of Arizona, this is what we do. We're the world leaders in integrated medical education. And we train doctors and nurse practitioners and, and medical students and residents. And our main uh, training is a two year intensive fellowship. And we've mm-hmm. now graduated over 2000 physicians from that. and also. specialties, all ages. And it's all the things they should have learned in medical school, but didn't including Mm -hmm. like healing and the fact the body can heal itself and so forth. So the people who come are self-selected and what's happening today is that so many people in medicine are just burned out. They're so disillusioned at what medicine has become Mm -hmm. and they know there's gotta be a different way. And so they come, you know, they come to us and there's a new generation out there. I think that gets it in a different way. There was a, a social club that I belonged to at Harvard Medical School that had a motto that uh, I, I always really liked. It was, we dress the wound, God heals it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, like and that's, that. A, that's acknowledging the, yeah. you know, that aspect of things.
1: Yeah, I mean, on, on the surface, obviously you cut your hand or whatever, you can watch it heal. Right. Like there is something going on that you don't need to really attend to. The body will take we'll care take of care it. Of itself but beyond that we don't really appreciate the extent to which the body is constantly doing that
0: yeah and i th- i find in my Work. one of the things that I have to do is try to instill greater confidence in people about their body's ability to take care of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, most people have no awareness of that and think they've got to run off for help, Mm -hmm. you know, as the first thing. Right,
1: and what's interesting is that these are things that have, you know, been paramount in all kinds of modalities dating back through history that were very dismissive of from Ayurveda, Chinese medicine and all that. I mean, now I feel like we're kind of looking at those things with, an appropriate level of reverence and and critique to figure out what works and what doesn't. But these are not new ideas. <laughs> yeah, hardly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've been in it for you know 50 years, but you know this has been going on for thousands. Of yeah, years. it bugs
0: me when I hear uh, doctors refer to what they're doing as traditional medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, to me, traditional medicine is Chinese medicine, Native American medicine, Ayurvedic medicine, things that are thousands of years old. I mean, our system of medicine in its present form is maybe 100 years old, 120 uh-huh. at the most. Yeah. You know, it doesn't go back very far.
1: But it's Packed into that is a certain level of arrogance and this idea that we're always at the pinnacle of human understanding and you you don't understand because we have this training and we're gonna tell you what to do. That's starting to shift right now. But that arrogance, that hubris becomes a bar to having um, a growth mindset or an openness to other ideas. Yeah,
0: very well put. And to me, the essence of, of science is open-minded observation. Right. You know, that's where you start.
1: I've been re-watching The Nick. Did you yeah, watch The yeah, Nick? I did, yeah. The Nick is like the greatest thing on television. It's unbelievable how good this show is. And for those that don't know, it's about Clive Owen plays this surgeon in 1900, Thackeray, he's full of vim and vigor and mm-hmm. ego and arrogance. And on some level he is a genius, but he's on the edge. He's a fanatical cocaine addict right. and opium yeah. addict, but he kind of rules the roost in the Nick, this hospital. And what I didn't realize until I looked into it a little bit more deeply is that he's based on William Stewart Halstead. Uh-huh. Did you know that?
0: I did not know that.
1: Right, who has kind of a similar trajectory having yeah. been a cocaine addict and a right. guy who kind of set in motion this residency program that is a legacy today of residents working insane hours. Yep. And a lot of that was dictated because the guy was like on cocaine all the time. right? And he could like work around the clock, but <laughs> the, I bring it up because that arrogance, right? He's yep. like, I'm the guy who's in charge, I know all. And when you look back on it, it's comedic because, He's giving people turpentine and soaking their feet in mercury and doing all kinds of crazy stuff that's just, you know, preposterous, but uh-huh. it makes you think like 100 years from now, what are we gonna look back on? Exactly. At what we're doing in this moment and realize how insane it is. I gave um, I gave an invited
0: lecture a few years ago that I called what we we're rethinking. Mm. And I looked at examples in the past 50 years of practices that now we look back on and I can't believe we did them, but leaving people with a question of what are we doing now that 50 years from now yeah. we'll look back the same way. So some of them were, one is, there were fluoroscopes in shoe stores when I was growing up Mm. to check the fit of shoes. So, you know there was this big console and you'd stick your feet with your new shoes under them. And there was a big glowing green screen and you'd see the bones of your feet. And the game as a kid was to distract your parents and the shoe salesman so you could spend as much time under there Uh as possible. I mean, unbelievable. Like an X-ray?
1: Yeah, like an X-ray in (laughs) shoe stores.
0: Right, Uh so another one was, This is much worse. There was uh, the thymus behind the breastbone is the master gland of the immune system. It's where uh, immune cells go to be trained to recognize Mm -hmm. antigens and foreign Mm -hmm. things. And it's very active in childhood and adolescence and it shrinks in adolescence. When I was in medical school, nobody knew what the thymus did. It was considered a functionless organ, a vestigial organ. First of all, that's arrogance, right? That you don't know what the function of something in the body is. So you say it has no Function, mm-hmm. and then the next step is that that allows you then to destroy it or take right, it out. So, it. so doctors in the this was in the 1950s. Uh, invented a disease that every child had called thymic hypertrophy, meaning the thymus is too large, treatable by bombarding it with X-rays, which causes it to shrink immediately. I had a good friend who was a graduate in my undergraduate class, and then he went to Harvard Law School, He was clerking for a Supreme Court clerk. And he got a letter one day from Michael Reese Hospital in Chicago, very good hospital in Chicago, saying our records show that as a child, you were taken to our clinic for a course of Mm X-rays directed at your thymus. And we're now finding that people that had this treatment are developing thyroid cancer at unusual rates. And they urged him to come in and get checked. He didn't even know this had been right. done to him. But I mean, unbelievable that kind of arrogance. Yeah.
1: When I think about the traditional modalities around healthcare, uh, you know, one thing I'm pretty certain we're not going to look kindly on years from now is the myopic perspective on lifestyle, diet, nutrition, all of these things that are the key contributors to the real epidemics of our time, yeah. which are the chronic lifestyle illnesses that are killing more people than yeah. anything else right now. And the over-medication of everybody, the treatment of symptoms, the inability to really get to the underlying yeah. causes and to you know address those in a meaningful way. A
0: major component of integrative medicine is lifestyle medicine. And I think that puts us in a really strong position to offer real preventive Mm -hmm. advice to people. Uh, The total instruction I got in nutrition in four years at Harvard Medical School was 30 minutes, which we're grudging- It hasn't changed much. No, it hasn't changed much. And when nutrition is taught, it's taught as biochemistry, which is forgotten as soon as the biochemistry exams are over. Uh, So, you know, I think most most doctors are functionally illiterate in nutrition, Mm -hmm. unless they've made an effort to learn it Their own, which is not so easy to do. Yeah,
1: well, systemically, the education is not about preventing disease or the promotion of well-being. It's about the treatment of yes.
0: disease. In, in fact, that was one of my motivations for getting out and learning other methods. Was I had learned nothing about health and healing in my medical studies. Mm-hmm. You know, I hardly ever heard the word healing used, and it always seemed to me my main job was to teach people how not to get sick in the first place. And I hadn't learned how to
1: do that. Mm. It's this unique treasure trove of wisdom that has become so important to my daily routine that the app finds itself right in the dock of my phone for immediate fingertip access. Beyond its robust catalog of daily meditations, it's also this extraordinary library of mindfulness resources that go well beyond the strictures of meditation with courses on stoicism, cognitive behavioral therapy, time management, procrastination, as well as thoughtful conversations with leading scholars on everything from psychedelics to happiness. It really is one of the most worthy investments you can make in yourself. And listeners of the show can get 30 days to try Waking Up for free. Plus, you'll save $30 on the in-app price. If price is a concern, Waking Up offers the app for free, astonishingly for anyone who can't afford it. You can find the links on their website to get a full scholarship right now. Just go to wakingup.com slash richroll to start your free month today. That's wakingup.com slash richroll. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. and recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. So let's define integrative medicine.
0: Well, the short definition is it's the intelligent combination of conventional medicine and natural and preventive medicine and and selected use of alternative therapies. But I think, you know, the fuller definition is it's a system that uh, really focuses on the body's ability to heal itself, that looks at people as whole persons, not just physical bodies, that takes all aspects of lifestyle into account, that Mm -hmm. values the... Practitioner patient relationship and makes use of all available treatments, no matter where they come from, as long as they're not going to hurt people and show reasonable evidence of efficacy.
1: Mm-hmm. And how does that differ from functional medicine? You know,
0: functional medicine, there's some overlap between functional medicine and integrative medicine, but I think they're quite different. Uh, I think that. That the functional medicine is very focused on biochemical mechanisms, uh, I think overly focused on that and and some of those biochemical mechanisms I, I think may not have great clinical relevance, and then in practice the the treatment is correcting these uh, these functional biochemical uh, disturbances by recommending a lot of of supplements to take. Mm. Um, I think that functional medicine is, has much less emphasis on mind-body medicine, on mm. spirituality in medicine, on the community aspects of medicine. Um, so I, th- I, I personally think that integrative medicine is a more comprehensive, more robust
1: system. Right, so in the training of this next generation of integrative medicine practitioners, um, the challenge, I, you know, there's there's a lot of challenges, but not the least of which is what is the business model? Because you're butting yeah. up against a conventional yeah. system that's driven by, you know, insurance reimbursements by profit, and, <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, you know, as dysfunctional as our healthcare system is, is and it's very dysfunctional. It's generating rivers of money, and that mm-hmm. money is flowing into very few pockets. It's the pockets of the big pharmaceutical companies, the manufacturers of medical devices, the big insurers, and the big healthcare you know uh, corporations and those vested interests don't want anything to change you know right. they're making out like like bandits and i feel bad we we train the people that come to us you know really highly and then we turn them out in the world where everything's stacked against them mm-hmm. you know the priorities of reimbursement are backward you know we don't we don't pay a doctor to sit with a patient and teach a breathing exercise we pay a doctor to prescribe drugs um mm-hmm. to and often when the doctor doesn't think those are necessary or to do tests you know we don't we don't reimburse for lifestyle counseling right so that all has to change
1: yeah there has been some progress i know dean ornish recently yep. got uh insurance reimbursement right. for some of his programs yep. but that's the key right you've right. got to get insurance on board with this exactly. otherwise it doesn't make financial sense especially when A big part of this is follow up and outreach and accountability, where you have, you know, kind of other practitioners in your office who are checking in on everybody and making sure that they're staying on track. Because you can't just say, you need to go, here's the diet you need, or here's the exercise routine, and expect people to actually follow that unless they feel, uh, you know, that there's some kind of program or emotional connection to it.
0: Totally, and the, uh, you know, I think the challenge is that we have to be able to take, we have to generate data that we can take the people who pay for healthcare to show them that it's in their interest to mm-hmm. pay for these mm-hmm. kinds of interventions. Right,
1: ultimately, uh, it's if you keep these people from getting diabetes and becoming right. obese, it's, a, it's gonna be a far less strain exactly. on the insurance you know, mechanism. But I,
0: apropos of that, I remember seeing a few years ago there was a week long series in the New York Times about the impact of the type 2 diabetes epidemic in New York City. Mm-hmm. And one of the articles pointed out that for every preventive nutritional counseling session that a diabetes center did in New York, uh, that the center lost, I think on average, something like 50 to $70. <laughs> For every yeah. amputation of a diabetic limb, uh-huh. they made $6,000. Right,
1: so it's a so misalignment it's, of it's incentives. Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. Yeah,
1: and that, That. I mean, that's a systemic change. It's, yeah. it's It's great to train these doctors and put them out in the world. And I believe that anybody maybe not all people, but most people who go to medical school are well-intentioned, they wanna Absolutely.
0: help people. Absolutely, And in fact, we a lot of the people that come to us for training say that this has really restored why they right. went into medicine in the first place. Yeah, because
1: there's so much disillusionment. Tremendous, disillusionment with and that's right a huge
0: now. change. When yeah. I was in medical school, Medicine looked like a very desirable profession. Uh, you know, Doctors had great status in mm-hmm. society, but I think one of the great promises was that it offered you autonomy. You could be your own boss, no longer. Mm-hmm. I mean, doctors cannot make it in solo practice anymore. You have yeah. to work for a corporation that tells you how many patients you have to see an hour, that tells you what you can do and not do in the way of, of mm-hmm. recommending treatments. Mm-hmm. That's all changed. I can't tell you how many doctors I've met in the past few years who say they wish they'd gone into another.
1: Yeah, I would imagine they have to become pretty leveraged with debt also for all the equipment. Huge problem. And 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 also just the
0: debt from medical school that many of them Mm -hmm. are still trying to pay off when they're in their 40s.
1: Yeah, it's it's not dissimilar from the chicken farmer who's really working for Tyson (laughs) Uh or, you know what I mean? And they're just, they're basically servicing debt and they become indentured to a system that is so rigor sort of rigid in in its structure yeah yeah you know, true it's hard man <laughs> um what uh of all the um kind of uh shamanistic you know alternative healing practitioners that you've you know encountered over the years, like how do you parse someone who's got the goods from the charlatans. I have a good bullshit detective. <laughs> good. <laughs> and some
0: of that was refined uh-huh. actually by going through Harvard Medical School. I'm very yeah. glad I had that education. Right. You know, it, it gives me a standard against which, uh-huh. you know, to judge stuff. Um, frankly, when I was in South America, a number of shamans that I saw were drunks. You know, they, mm-hmm. were, they were completely nothing for me to learn from. The, I would say the, the mentor that I most value is the one that I learned that breathing technique from who was an old elderly osteopathic physician, uh, Robert Fulford. I met him when he was in the early 80s. He'd come to Tucson to retire. He used only hands-on manipulation. He's the best healer I've ever seen. Uh, he placed great emphasis on the breath. Uh, his, the manipulative technique he did was very gentle. He had Mm -hmm. huge hands. Mm -hmm. It was great to be worked on by him. And you know, people would he'd do a treatment and then people would say, When should I come back? And he would say, You don't have to come back, you know, you're fixed. Right. And he would do these things and say, There, you know, I made these adjustments and now let old Mother Nature do her work. Uh Uh, and and I saw remarkable cures in in his office just from these this simple I mean he was a healer, but he had a method that also worked.
1: So what do you make of that? Like what is going on? I think first of all
0: he was a charismatic healer. There was something special about him. But he also was very talented. He had trained himself. You know, he had incredible sensitivity of his hands, and and what he taught made a great deal of sense. For example, one of the he was incredibly effective at ending uh, recurrent cycles of otitis media, ear infections in kids. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and in conventional medicine, it, this is treated with cycles of antibiotics, and eventually, if that they don't work, they put tubes in the Years, he said that the root cause of the problem uh, was improper breathing. And that breathing was the mechanical force that pumped the lymphatic circulation. And if that wasn't working properly, there was stagnant fluid buildup in the middle ear, which provided a breeding ground for bacteria. And he said mm. you could wipe out the bacteria all you wanted with antibiotics, but if you didn't change that underlying problem, the infections would come back, which is what our experience is. He would do one treatment mm. you know, of manipulation. You'd see the kid's chest expanding more fully when he finished and they'd never have another ear infection. Wow. I mean, amazing. And I tried for several years to get one pediatrician in Tucson to come down to his office and watch Uh and nobody would come. And that's the attitude I can't stand. But I finally got one, an English woman who was a pediatrician who came and she eventually sent him patients. And she said she'd never seen anything like that. Mm. And I made a little documentary film of him, but Mm. no, he was really inspiring. And when I was working with him, he charged $35 for a visit, he had no
1: equipment. Right, and he he, in Tucson, right? Yeah. After you traveled all over yes, South exactly. America that was in perfect. Of, also, right. That's yeah, the, that's yeah. the
0: Wizard of Oz phenomenon, uh-huh. right? You know that that was right in my backyard, and I'd never mm-hmm. known it was there to begin with.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting um, how we try to wrap our heads around things that we don't understand, and our resistance to these outside ideas and you know, how it takes time. Like now, you know, we have, I'm sure you're familiar with Wim Hof and all yeah, the stuff yeah, that yeah. he's doing with breath. And for some reason, you know, perhaps in part due to his charisma um, and and the fact that he's sharing so much on social media, yep. there seems to be a conversation around breath and this is the great. autonomic nervous yeah, system. And And, you know, what I kind of gather from everything that he does, all of which is rooted in pranayama and yep. like ancient yogic yep. breathing techniques, is this idea that we have more control over these systems that we... We, we just believe are our, our running automatically within us that we can actually manipulate them. Right,
0: and breath I think is the key to that because mm-hmm. it's the only function you can do completely consciously or completely unconsciously. And the theory of breath work and pranayama is that by using your conscious system to impose rhythms on the breath, you gradually induce those rhythms in the involuntary system mm-hmm. and, that, and thereby you get to the autonomic nervous system and can change its function that's uh, such a simple idea. And it's something that's been paid so little attention to in the West. So yeah. it's great to see this coming. And yeah,
1: now he's like being studied and yeah, all yeah, this yeah. stuff. And this the, cold, the cold exposure is what gets all the attention, but it's really the breath. I think it's really the yeah. breath.
0: I mean, I think the cold stuff is great. I do, I, you know, have partly as a result of uh, meeting him and, and listening to that, you know, I, I um, I spend summers in in British Columbia on an island. The ocean's pretty uh-huh. cold there and I go in every day and yeah. I've gotten to like that and I you know I like cold dips and cold things. Right. I think that's good. Yeah, and that's cold. That's cold. Yeah. But I think as you say absolutely the breath is the key and mm-hmm. it's it's wonderful suddenly to see interest in this. You know there's books that have started to come out uh, on breath suddenly being taken somewhat seriously. Right. It was yeah, so James, ignored. Nestor's book. James Nestor's right. book which is good.
1: Yeah. What about these stories that you hear uh, about, you know, sadhus and caves in the Himalayas <laughs> who are breatharians and haven't eaten food for decades. Well, you know, it's like, is this no, apocryphal? I'm, like I'm, have I'm, you, ever, <laughs> you ever met any of those guys? <laughs> no,
0: I'm an open-minded yeah. skeptic. Uh-huh. Uh, and yeah, I wanna hear that, where's yeah. the line. Okay, so from, I'm willing to believe I'm willing to believe anything, but then uh-huh. i got to see evidence believe, for it right you know but but that's different from being a closed-minded skeptic, which is what a, you know a lot of people I meet in medicine are mm-hmm. that they from the they, they have a mindset not to believe from the beginning. No, I've never met a breatharian. There was uh-huh. one famous guy uh in Los Angeles who had a big following. Uh, and was caught on videotape stuffing himself with candy bars <laughs> in a Seven Eleven. Of course, yeah, right. So uh-huh. I don't know that I haven't seen. However, I've seen enough stuff that make me, you know, I'm willing to believe. You know, right. Wim Hof, uh, his methods were he got a lot of that from Tibetan practice and the, those people that, uh, you know. Can warm themselves to an incredible degree in mm-hmm. dry blankets sitting out on a frozen shore of a frozen lake I mean sure I'm, yeah. i've seen that i yeah. 've done uh, fire walking myself and mm. and f- very impressed with with that you know i I've, I did it the wrong way several times and then I did it. You know, the right way I did one with Tony Robbins when he uh-huh. was trying to set a world record for the longest fire walk. It was 40 feet over a very hot bed of coals. And and on, I had on a shorter, much shorter, cooler walk, I burned my feet. But when I did that one, I was in the right state of mind. And it was, there was no sensation of heat. I walked slowly, I could dig my feet into the hot coals. I had nothing, I got really high. You know, amazing. I mean, yeah. that was like, and that was totally where my mind was at the time. Yeah,
1: and he's taken thousands of people yeah. through that right. successfully. Um, so, what is the like? How do you explain that? Well, I think if you're all right, this is just
0: guess, right? And then it's also based on some of my psychedelic experiences. I think if the mind gets out of the way, uh, it it can leave the nervous system. Uh, free to allow the body to interact with external things in ways that it's very precise and balanced. For example, mm-hmm. um, I, one of the experiences I, I have had repeatedly is in a psychedelic state, walking barefoot over sharp stones, which I normally mm-hmm. couldn't do because it hurt too much. But not only did it not hurt, there were no dents in my foot. Mm. So that's the interesting aspect, you know, what's going on there. And it it feels to me as if if my mind is not interfering, that the m- muscles on the surface of the foot can push back very precisely to neutralize the force at the surface of the skin. And that's like some ability that we have, which we normally don't see because our our mind is somehow not letting that happen.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have this other story about about doing yoga and, and being unable to do reverse crow right. or whatever yeah. it was and then <laughs> you know, dropping acid or psilocybin yeah, or what it was and then was being like, able to
0: do and, right, but then when it wore off, I couldn't do it again. Right. and but but having seen that I could do it, I was motivated to right. practice until I was able. Right, to
1: do it. it's a it's getting the mind out of the out way, of the way. Or quieting right. the mind. Yeah, right, and and then it becomes a conversation around how do you do that without exogenous substances? Right. Well,
0: I think obviously it's possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with, with uh, Tony Robbins and that firewalk, I wasn't taking anything. It was the group energy that he created. Yeah. That, that caused the change.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it's impossible to not develop a deeper appreciation for just how powerful the mind is, um, and and then it becomes even more inexcusable, in my perspective, from the lack of appreciation for that in in medical in in mental health. Um, in The mental health space where we're just over medicating people uh, like crazy, especially kids. Uh, the extent to which uh, this we're is prescribing a vast experiment, a vast and, experiment being done you know, with kids, these we have, drugs for ADHD and everything like that. We so have no idea what these that. do to the developing brain.
0: Uh, and you know, it's, it's ironic that uh, the word psychiatry comes from Greek, it means soul doctoring. Mm-hmm. You know, what a great concept but it 's ironic that of all the medical specialties, psychiatry is the one that 's become most mired in materialism uh, you know the, the, the dogma is that all disordered thinking and emotion is the result of disordered brain biochemistry, and the only way to deal with that is by giving pharmaceuticals to change that uh, and if that were right, if that, if that were true we would be much more effective at dealing with mental Mm -hmm. illness.
1: Yeah, they don't seem to work very well. No,
0: (laughs) that's a very good observation. You look, if you look at uh, psychiatry journals and look at the ads for the pharmaceuticals, you would think that depression, anxiety, that these would be things of the past, you know, and it's not so, they are not very effective, these methods.
1: Yeah, I, I also think that there's, Something going on culturally where we, we've been lulled into this belief that we should never be anything but happy. Exactly, right? you wrote a right. whole book about this. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like the, if I'm not feeling good today, like uh, the first the first impulse is to yeah, figure out how to medicate. i serotonin it. Yeah. in my
0: brain, so I better take something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great mistake. You know, we're not supposed to be happy all the time.
1: Right. So beyond breath, um, what are other I'm sure there are it's certain the things people you know, that-
0: It's like physical activity yeah. is one of the most powerful uh, ways of stabilizing mood. Uh, nutrition has an enormous effect on, on uh, brain function and mm-hmm. mood. I think who you associate with you know, moods are contagious. You know, If you spend time in the company of people who are depressed and anxious, you're more likely to be depressed and anxious. Yeah. I mean, there's actual research showing that if you have a happy friend who lives within a half mile of you, mm-hmm. you are more likely to be happy and the effect falls Off with distance. You can actually measure this. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, so and many people I mean, that's something I tell people to do. Many people have never think about that.
1: Yeah. Well, a big piece of that is this loss of of community that I think is endemic to modern culture. And especially acute right now during the pandemic. Of course. Right. I'm sure you are you friends with Dan Butner? Yeah. You know, Dan? (laughs) Yeah. Dan's coming over here tomorrow. Oh, great. How <laughs> um, but you know, one of the many things I appreciate about his work is that he understands that you can't shoulder the individual with trying to, you know, solve all these problems on their own. We have to, we have to reimagine how we construct communities to make these things just you know in the background so that they're the easy choices whether it's bike yeah. lanes or yeah, very, access to healthy food or you know neighborhoods organized so that community is inevitable.
0: Very good point, yeah. Yeah, and I
1: think and that's that's that's, that's part and parcel of the integrative medicine message, right? Yes. Like those two worlds should merge with each other in some way. Yeah. In some way,
0: you know, we place a great deal of emphasis on community and the importance of community to healing and health. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. Another thing that that uh must strike you as kind of amazing is uh the the kind of recent appreciation for mushrooms. <laughs> non um, non yeah, yeah, non-psychoactive yeah. mushrooms. Like <laughs> Everyone's drinking mushroom coffee, and we're all talking about healthy mushrooms. And <laughs> and this is something that you've been talking about forever. Yeah, I right? got into
0: I was fascinated for mushrooms from an early age. I think partly because my mother was very afraid of them, mm. uh, and she told me if, when mushrooms came up on our lawn that I shouldn't even touch them because I could get poisoned. And somehow that made me want to you know I want to know about them. They seemed strange and interesting. And actually, throughout history, I think people have found mushrooms strange. Know, it's yeah. unclear. They didn't grow from roots like plants, and they would suddenly appear from one day to the next. And you know, they're uh, strange colors and odors and tastes. And some of them are utterly delicious, and there's some that can kill you. And now we found all of these that have interesting medicinal effects. Mm-hmm. No, they're they're really unusual, interesting life forms. And uh, as you may have heard, we are more closely related to mushrooms than yeah. we are to plants. Yeah, that's a mind blower. Yeah
1: and And the extent to which the underground invisible network exactly. is a is a communication network that basically plays this massive role in the entire ecosystem. Exactly,
0: I mean, I I remember learning, this must have been in the 70s or 80s, and I I had no idea this, that uh, trees in the forest could not live unless they formed symbiotic associations Mm -hmm. with mushrooms. You know That the rootlets of trees actually become sheathed with the mycelium of mushrooms. And if you take tree seedlings and sterilize the roots and plant them, the trees are completely stunted and don't grow normally. I mean, right. I, I had studied biology at Harvard. I never heard of that. Yeah, you know, that's wild. a completely new idea.
1: Yeah, and and now you know Paul Stamets is the guy that everyone right. wants to talk to about this. But you're the guy who introduced him to this <laughs> yeah, whole thing, which right. is crazy. I think I read that in <laughs> yeah. in uh, Michael Pollan's
0: book. Yeah, I got him interested, especially in medicinal mushrooms, because mm-hmm. he was only interested in the magic ones
1: when I met him, when he was a young guy. Right. So of all the mushrooms, like what are the ones that you feel like we should be incorporating into our routine?
0: Oh gosh, you know, I think it's probably best to incorporate uh, several, a number of different species at the Mm -hmm. same time, because they seem to work. Synergistically, uh, I think uh, reishi, which is a has good anti-inflammatory effect, uh, maitake mushrooms, mm-hmm. oyster mushrooms, shiitake. Um, a, a lot of these are the ones that have immune modulating effects that increase our resistance to infection and cancer. Very useful. Lion's mane, which I you know is now being cultivated. Why it's a very good edible mushroom, yeah. but this has a unique. Nerve growth factor uh, appears to improve cognitive function, may help ward off dementia. Uh, I think that's a really good one to know about. Chaga. Chaga, which is another one of these shelf fungi that grow in trees. but and uh, how about cordyceps? Is that that's one you're my familiar favorite. With? Okay, I was, yeah. Thought you I mean, would be.
1: it works as yeah. an endurance booster right. in terms of how it helps you sort of maximize oxygen yeah. uptake. Like it's very effective. Uh, so this is
0: a strange one. You know, it's a parasitic mushroom that <laughs> yes. grows on caterpillar It's pretty gross. Larvae, yeah,
1: right? it grows on the. It's a fungus that grows on the back of a caterpillar. Caterpillar, right? At very high altitude.
0: Yeah, and that kills the caterpillar and then sends up this uh, fruiting stalk. Although in in practice now it's cultivated on yeah. grain, it, but yeah this yeah. this is has a long history of use in uh traditional Chinese medicine for uh people who are debilitated either from injury or illness mm-hmm. uh or old age of increasing energy and there's been good studies showing increases aerobic capacity mm-hmm. so that's a it's a
1: that's a good tasting mushroom and no, it's a good one to know about. Yeah, the more you learn about this, you realize just how mystical and magical yeah, it is. It's, yeah, it's insane. I love mystical and magical. Yeah. That's that's your good that's to keep your that thing, that man, mind, right? Yes. Um where does the the uh, the um interest in matcha come in? Is that when you traveled to Japan? Yeah,
0: I went to Japan first when I was 17. I was on a part of that when I was in that uh, round the world student exchange Mm -hmm. program. And I lived with Japanese families. Uh, First one was outside of Tokyo. This was 1959 when Japan was a very different Place And the family I lived with, uh, there was supposed to be a a student there that was studying English, but we had no language in common. But the second night I was there, the mother of the family uh, indicated she wanted to take me next door to her neighbor who was a practitioner of tea ceremony. And so the three of us sat around and this woman made matcha. And uh, first of all, I was blown away by the color of matcha. I'd never seen that vibrant green was just amazing. Mm -hmm. And then also the bamboo whisk that's used Whisked match in a bowl—it's just a marvel Beautiful. of Japanese craftsmanship. I was fascinated with. So, I—I um, I, in the 1970s, I was going to Japan. Um, fairly regularly. And whenever I'd go, I'd bring matcha back and turn people onto it. Nobody that I knew had ever experienced it or knew anything about it. Uh-huh. And somewhere in the, I think it was in the 19, late 1980s, 1990s, I tried to sell matcha through my website. I imported it. I found a company that I could get it from in Japan, but it was way ahead of its time, you know, so yeah. uh, people weren't ready for it. And then, uh, you know, I was amazed to see matcha becoming
1: it's just here. one of the many things that you've been talking right. about all the time.
0: However, I was very disappointed that the, most of the matcha that I saw here was really inferior because um, matcha is so, it's such a fine powder that it oxidizes mm-hmm. really quickly. And when it oxidizes, it loses that bright green color, it becomes bitter, it's not pleasant. And most of what I saw available here was that way. So I was determined to see if uh, I could make really good matcha available. So. I founded a company. Managed to get the URL matcha dot com, which is mm-hmm. a big score. Yeah, that and, is. And uh, made a connection with a traditional matcha producer in Japan, and we import and sell. I think some of the best matcha you can get. Yeah. And by the way, we can offer I, I can offer your listeners a discount. Oh, cool. So it's matcha dot com is the, company, the company's carry, and if they use the discount code rich fifteen,
1: all right, they will get a good. discount. That's very generous. Our, our Thank you. Matcha.
0: But matcha's, you know, it's it's. It's the only form of tea that in which you consume the whole leaf. Mm-hmm. And it's got a higher content of antioxidants and flavor compounds and other healthful compounds. And some of this is because of the unusual way that the leaves are grown. Uh, in the last three weeks before harvest, they're grown under a very heavy shade cloth, 90% shade cloth. And in response to that, absence of light, the leaves grow bigger and thinner and produce more chlorophyll, which is why it's so bright green right. and more L-theanine, which is the calming compound that moderates mm-hmm. the caffeine and antioxidants and other good things. So I think for all those reasons, matcha is, is one of the most healthful forms of tea out there.
1: Yeah, I love it. Um, it does give you a little bit of a boost, but it's kind of a calm energy and exactly. it sustains yeah. itself Very a little different bit longer. from coffee. And the color is magical. It's magical. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Tastes great. Um, but I know well, the difference between a fine matcha and what you typically see, it's a much darker color. You can darker tell it's or been- or
0: yellowish.
1: You could tell, yeah, you could tell it's been oxidized. And I see this with a lot of these, you know, quote unquote, superfood products, the mm-hmm. more money there is to be made um, with the lack of kind of quality control or regulation yeah. in this space, You know, you go whether it's moringa or you know whatever it is, kamu kamu, whatever you're trying to get. It's really hard to know like what's the good stuff and what's you know. Yeah, and if you've had
0: no experience of the good stuff, you don't you don't know right,
1: and you don't know how it's harvested, how it's grown, how it's picked, how it's stored, how it's shipped. All of those things play into whether or not it's maintaining you know the qualities that you're purchasing it for, and most of these products are not good for that reason. Exactly. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to the conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
0: By the way, I, I get a little disillusioned with all the talk about superfoods yeah. because we have plenty of superfoods right here. You know, like berries are superfoods, mm. and you can get you know very good quality organic uh, berries that are just loaded with antioxidants and anti-cancer compounds. You know, that,
1: those are superfoods. Right. Going all the way back to the the botany days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. How many people were in the botany department Boy, it at Harvard? Was,
0: it was an attic of the <laughs> university. You know, first yeah. of all, it was it, the botanical You're gonna study museum. What? Yeah, really. It, it was biology was being completely taken over by molecular biology and mm-hmm. gene stuff at that point, and botany was a little annex that was considered so. Antiquated, yeah, and it was in the botanical museum, which was above the glass flowers and the uh-huh. and the you know and the Gregory
1: Mendel wing or exactly something. exactly right. Yeah.
0: But you know, it, but the my professor uh, Dick Schultes was the father of modern ethnobotany, mm-hmm. and that was just a wonderful association that I formed with him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and having that background in in botany has been invaluable to me. I, I know very few physicians who studied botany. Yeah. And, and it was a shock to me when I went to medical school uh, to see that the people teaching me pharmacology generally had no firsthand knowledge of the plants that these drugs came from. Uh, and to see how different the whole plants were from the chemicals isolated mm-hmm. from them, so that's given me a great perspective.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, no, no surprise given that the idea that nutrition, in and of itself, really had no value in terms right. of you know how the organism operates, Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that's changing. I, I, I love all the new science that's coming out about the microbiome. That's fantastic, yeah, that is such a revolution. And that's and, eno- I mean, that's as fascinating as the mushroom kingdom. Absolutely. And is mysterious, I think.
0: Yeah, when I was in medical school, the teaching was that, yes, there were these organisms in the colon and they helped with digestion, but that was it. Yeah. And that people who took uh, uh, acidophilus or ate yogurt were health nuts. Right. Um, you know, boy, has that changed. Yeah, it's changed a
1: lot, yeah. it's changed a lot. Well, I'm a long time plant-based vegan person. Yes, I know. I know you're not vegan, but somebody who appreciates the plant kingdom, perhaps Very as much, much. As, as, as anybody, um, so. I love talking about plants. Can I just say
0: also, yeah. I love talking about plants, too. I love plants, I garden a lot, I, I have lots of plants around me all the time. But you know, one of the reasons that I, I would love to see people move in the direction of eating more plants mm-hmm. and reduce consumption of animals, that this is a very concrete thing that we could do to, deal with one of the factors that's driving these zoonotic diseases sure. that are responsible for this pandemic and which are putting us at great risk for future pandemics of mm-hmm. very serious diseases. It's it's that we are encouraging organisms to jump from animals to people because of climate change, deforestation, our methods of agriculture. And you look at the ones, what what are we gonna do something about? One of them very concretely is it to reduce our dependence on animals for food. If there was just less of that, you know, that would put us Ahead of the game, yeah,
1: hundred percent. In the way that we need to appreciate the human body and its ability to heal and self-regulate, we need to we need to own that perspective with respect to the planet, right? For sure. And if we're if we're um, you know clearing rainforests and and you know creating algal blooms in our waterways, yeah. we're devastating ecosystems and we're creating less and less areas for these species to exist in the manner in which you know they're meant to exist. And yeah. so they end up encroaching on other areas and these species are coming into contact that perhaps wouldn't otherwise. And yeah. all of this creates this toxic situation that leads to zoonotic disease yeah. and the decay of the planet. And a very simple, practical and effective thing that we can all do as individuals is reduce that, yeah. that meat intake. Yeah. You still like the fish though? I still like fish. You know, I'll tell you the I I, became, Wall.
0: I stopped eating I became a lacto vegetarian in nineteen seventy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I was ate that way for about fifteen years and then I was going to Japan frequently. It is very difficult to go to Japan and not eat fish because fish are in everything. Uh, and then I was reading about health benefits of fish, so I started eating fish. And um, you know, since then I've been a, a pesco pescatarian. Yeah, but
1: you're not going to Japan right now. That's correct. <laughs> Come on, I, I know on. Sylvia Earle was all over you. right? She was
0: all over me. She begged me to not t- to tell people yeah. not to eat fish.
1: Did you did you watch uh, Seaspiracy? Sure, on Netflix. Yeah. Yeah, she's great in that movie. She's great,
0: um, and you know it's a big problem. There aren't, mm, aren't going to be fish in the oceans yeah. from the way that we've overharvested
1: yeah. them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna convert you back to me. <laughs> All a right, you can <laughs> work on it. How do you, how do you feel about lab-grown meat or lab-grown? Food? I think it's interesting. Y- y- you know, it's, it's. Uh, I mean, look, we can have a discussion on the margins about the health implications of that, but I think we need to focus on the elephant in the room, which is the extent to which our dependence on industrialized animal agriculture is wreaking havoc on the planet. Yeah. We are a meat obsessed yeah. world. And that has to change if right. we wanna preserve our ecosystems. This is one tool in a, in a toolkit for accomplishing that.
0: Yep, I agree. And you I know? would say probably I would tell people in this country that the place to start is with beef because I think that's yeah. the one that has the worst. Yeah, consequences.
1: Yeah, Um, you know it also. There's also issues of antibiotic, you know, resistance, and there's there's it's just it's a toxic stew of so many true problems that we could redress if we just reduce that dependency on it. So whether you go 100 percent plant based or 90 percent plant based, or you start you know just making some simple changes in your diet on a daily basis like these these things are important to yep. do and to take seriously i think yep. so you still like a little cheese though <laughs> <laughs> right you know what i did yeah. i um my wife uh is a plant based cheese wizard and yeah. she started this company called Shreemu. she's really like come up with the next evolution of cheese so i brought you some samples oh i'd I'll love to try you that afterwards be very yeah, yeah yeah, to do that. yeah. I'm yeah. also
0: very interested in uh, new microprotein foods that are, you know, being developed from from um, cultivating fungi and mm-hmm. mushrooms. Right. And yeah. There's this weird
1: in intersection of, of 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 the science catching up with like sort of hard science catching up with food science yeah. to create um, interesting. Uh, products out of everything from algae to right. mushrooms and all this kind of thing. Are your kids vegan? They are, but they're, you know, they're now at the age where they're they need to have their own exploration. Yeah. You know, so we give them a wide leash. I mean, they 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 stray from the hardcore vegan path, but but they've never had meat. Mm-hmm. So they'll have, you know, but they'll like, you know, my teenage daughter, she wants to have a Beyond burger right. and stuff like that, oh, you wow. know. <laughs> you know, she wants to have some junk food, you know, it's okay. It's like, I'm less interested in that than I am in you know, where her or all of my kids diet is gonna be five, 10 years yeah. from now. And we've just tried to instill in them you know, a certain level mm-hmm. of education. So it's less about like the day to day and more about like in general yeah. kind of where they fall. But it's tricky with people yeah. with food, right? I know. You know, you've been doing this for a long time, I know. trying to get people to change their habits. Yeah. I mean, come on. Right. Is there anything harder than that? Right. Well, what I, are, what, how do you approach that when. Well, I usually tell
0: people, you know, not to try to do make global change, but to do it in small pieces. Mm-hmm. You know, like start by, I mean, the most important thing is to start by not eating refined, processed, and manufactured food. You know, that's mm-hmm. that's the right. you know, main step that I would urge.
1: Yeah, I mean, if we could just do that, imagine that put us very how far different the world would be. And
0: another one is we're in such a nutritional mess in this country, it's hard to know where to start. But the other place I'd start is to get people to not drink sweet liquids. Mm-hmm. You know, if you could just, and it's not just, you know, it's it's not just sodas, it's fruit juice and energy drinks and putting sugar and coffee and tea yeah. and all that. Yeah, That would be a big step.
1: Yeah, and we gotta do something about these uh, farm subsidies, I think. Uh, Again, it goes back to a misalignment yeah, of incentives. A- absolutely, yeah. right. Everything
0: is is backward. Right. We've made the unhealthiest food cheapest and most available, mm. and
1: people eat what's cheap and what's available. Yeah. Um, extending that thought, in thinking about the disastrous state of of healthcare, if you were you know if you had your druthers like how would you how would you address healthcare reform
0: <laughs> well f- first of all we don't have a healthcare system in this country we have a disease management system that's functioning very imperfectly and getting worse by the minute we have to have universal healthcare. I mean, it's unconscionable mm-hmm. that the richest nation on earth can't guarantee basic health care to all of its citizens. Ah, you're
1: socialist.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> there you go. I think there should be a universal yeah. income too. Yeah. Uh, then I think we have to really break the hold of those vested interests on, uh, you know, on the system. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really see uh, uh, we have to get away from dependence on expensive technology for managing conditions. In terms of shifting the whole enterprise away from uh, disease management to health promotion, the problem is you run up again against those uh, vested interests again. You know, it's whether one example is the subs farm subsidies. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, there's last I looked, something like 46% of US hospitals had fast food restaurants in their premises. And if you try to change that, you know, this, is, this brings money to the hospital. Yeah you know it's like almost everywhere you look it's like you're up against that kind of stuff
1: yeah well in the in the way that the human body and the planet are holistic organisms politics is a whole like yeah. you can't talk about healthcare reform without talking about um Election reform and right. campaign finance reform because so, it's the, lo- the lobbying, you know, yes. so there industrial be, complex there has creates to be a, these things. A grassroots
0: social political movement in which we start electing different kinds of representatives who aren't beholden to mm-hmm. those vested interests. I don't see that happening. Yeah.
1: Who who do you think is getting it right? Like, you know, overseas, Finland, you know, like these I other think countries? Germany
0: and Australia do better. They both have two tiered systems where there's a uh, government insurance and there's also private insurance. Mm-hmm. They seem to work somewhat better, but I, you know, most of the countries, you look at the uk japan that that had very well functioning national uh, health systems they're broken down for the same reasons mm-hmm. you know it's an aging population epidemics of lifestyle related diseases dependence on expensive technology mm-hmm. you know we're f- i think farther over the cliff than other i don't think anybody i don't see anybody that's got it right
1: yeah when you look at, at at culture right now with the internet it's all about subscription services mm-hmm. whether it's netflix or the new york times and yeah. and i've often thought like healthcare should be a, like i would subscribe to a service that was some hybrid of being able to visit practitioners in person yeah. and do digital you know online stuff that's an interesting idea yeah where i could get my blood work done and i could consult about you know diet and nutrition and all idea. these things and ultimately, if you develop like like oh, every week we check in or something like that, right? The insurance company covering that it seems like a leap, but they're not going to then have to pay for dialysis yeah. or yeah, yeah, all these yeah. other things. Well, that that's what I mean. You got to the show them
0: that's in their interest right. that you're going to save them money by this.
1: Yeah, but it's such a it's so radical compared to the way that we're doing yeah. it now. And but I,
0: we're going to be forced to change because this is unsustainable. the yeah. way it's going.
1: are you optimistic about that? <laughs>
0: I think the system's going to crash. Mm. You know, we're spending something like eighteen uh, percent of our gross domestic product on healthcare, and we have worse health outcomes right. than
1: any other developed nation. It's it's, it's um, indefensible. Yeah. in so many ways. Yeah. how do you how do you think about um, you know ancillary to that, like the the opiate crisis and
0: well, I think it's a great opportunity for integrative medicine uh, mm-hmm. because you know, it's very clear that chronic pain cannot be managed by opioids alone as standalone treatments and th- that treatment has to be integrated. Yeah. So, and so I just see that as an opportunity mm-hmm. that's forcing people to look at you know, other ways of managing
1: conditions. Mm-hmm. Um, of all the alternative modalities that you've come across, hypnosis, meditation, breath work, yoga, all the like. What do you think are the most um, kind of underappreciated?
0: Well, as I told you, I'm a big fan of osteopathic manipulative treatment. I think that's great. It's Mm. unfortunate that only a small percentage of osteopaths today do manipulation as a primary therapy. And I hope that'll come back because it's a brilliant technique. Uh, I, I, as I said, I'm a huge enthusiast for mind body interventions and the whole range of them, I think are terrific. Um, I I have long tried to create and boost the field of nutritional medicine. Mm -hmm. And when I write treatment plans for patients, almost always the first item or a couple of items are about dietary change and making dietary change a primary therapy before you even think about other things to
1: do. Are there are there supplements that you recommend that you think are appropriate? for? Well,
0: you know, I think I, I think probably everybody should take a a good multi nutrient a mm-hmm. supplement that has basic minerals and antioxidants. And I think a great public health intervention would be to provide a multi nutrient supplement free to school kids. Mm,
1: that's uh, a good idea. That seems like and, a no brainer. And the prison
0: inmates, as I think it would do a lot. Yeah. Simple. So, and beyond that, I think, you know, I think it's probably a good idea for people to take vitamin D and check mm-hmm. their vitamin D levels. Uh,
1: yeah, I think most people are vitamin D deficient. We just live e- indoors. Even in,
0: even in Southern Arizona where I live because mm. dermatologists have made people so paranoid Afraid about of the, the sun. sun. Yeah,
1: yeah, well also, it's not just a matter of going outside. It depends on where you live, course, right? Like you have to be year, pretty right? far south in this, the time of the year for, for getting vitamin D. Any, yeah. yeah and from. it's
0: like the line is through Atlanta. So if Isn't you, live, far if you south? live north of Atlanta for half the year, the sun is a too low an angle for uh-huh. you to make vitamin D.
1: Right, right. So yeah, I think that would be important. What yeah. do you, how do you uh, think about all of this in the context of the pandemic and COVID?
0: Well, I think the clear principle is that uh, you know healthy organisms are resistant. So the healthier you are, the less likely that you are to mm-hmm. contract that, or the less likely you get severely ill.
1: How dare you? <laughs> we're not we're not allowed to talk about that. <laughs> this is
0: dangerous. But you know, I also have to say I think we we were so miserably unprepared mm-hmm. in this country for this, and I, I hope it's a wake up call because we're certain to be facing. You know, other and probably worse things like this, and I hope we get our act together next time.
1: Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, listen. You know, it's all the things that that we've been told to do are are appropriate, from mm-hmm. social distancing to masks and yeah. all of that. It's all it's all fine, but it is frustrating that there is no conversation about taking personal responsibility right. for your health and. And the idea that we should just be locked down and and completely isolated and and told to stay indoors, you know, is yeah. is really you know that doesn't square with what we understand about what we need to do to optimize the our, immune function yeah, of our bodies. Right.
0: True. Yeah. Well, uh, I hope that's going to
1: change. <laughs> <laughs> um, final thing I wanted to ask you is uh, if in some. Parallel universe, you got called up to be Surgeon General. What would be top of mind to put in place in terms of regulations or policies? Boy, or, I, I
0: would really work on nutrition. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's such a
1: crying need. Remember you know when Michelle Obama tried to do that, yeah. though? She got crucified.
0: I know. But I think, you know, it's got to be done. I mean, whether it's like putting a, you know, a, a syntax on sugary beverages, uh, you know, doing something about fast food restaurants and hospitals, this agricultural subsidies you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff. I think it's like,
1: those are critical things that have to change. It's crazy that there's still fast food restaurants and hospitals Unbelievable. and how difficult it is to eradicate. I that. just want, I'll tell you one quick story. I got a
0: letter a few years ago from a first year medical student at University of Pennsylvania who tried started to campaign to get a McDonald's out of the university hospital. He got a petition going among his students. They got publicity in the Philadelphia papers and he was called in by the Dean of Students who told him if he persisted in this he'd jeopardize his medical degree. I mean that's yeah, in a nutshell, something that's the problem.
1: Very, very wrong with our system. Yeah. That that would be yeah. the case.
0: It's terrible. Yeah. Terrible. The hospital, it's, you know, they'd signed a deal with the devil
1: and that was it. I know. So this is what we're contending with. Yeah. So we need you to stick around for I'll another 50 I'll years. I'll do my best. <laughs> yeah, um, You're a gift. Uh, I'm so grateful for the work that you've done over the years and, and what you stand for. And it is cool to see culture catching up to you. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's, it's an it's honor and pleasure to talk to you. Thank, thank, you, thank you for having me. Um, if people wanna connect with you.
0: my Well, my website is drweil.com, mm-hmm. D-R-W-E-I-L.com. Um, uh, the website of my center at the University of Arizona is integrativemedicine.arizona.edu, mm-hmm. and that has a Find a Practitioner link where you can find graduates of our program who are in all states and all specialties. Uh, matcha.com is the website of Matcha Kari. Right. And uh,
1: code rich code rich, rich fifteen. 15. There yes, go. get your discount. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and True Food Kitchen. And True Food Kitchen. Yeah. Right. This I is, love uh, True
0: Food Kitchen. Good. Uh, we. Got 37 of them now, and I mm-hmm. think we'll open more. And that's been very gratifying to me because basically, you know, that's how I eat, and it's been good to yeah. see other people like. Yeah. yeah,
1: it's great. I mean, you can. It's it's very and tailored to for whatever you're. Yeah, like yeah. I go in there as a vegan, I never have any problems right, at good. all. Um, I've been to the one in Santa Monica and I've been to ones when I'm on the road. Yeah, traveling. I'd like
0: to see, am I constantly pushing for more vegan options there? So, uh-huh. you know, I'm doing what yeah,
1: I can. Yeah, I think you could do with uh, a few tell more. Tell me about it. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes there, are, um, they're on the menu but because not not enough people order it or whatever sometimes it's not available so
0: but if you ask i mean uh, when they'll they do, had their full menu they'll make anything yeah they've done you. that for me yeah, they've done that for me
1: and i think it's cool that that i mean 30 how many 35 37 37 now. of these yeah. to create a successful I mean, it's not a chain like a fast food chain, but it's a ch- it is a franchise. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, is it yeah. A it's not or- a
0: franchise, no.
1: But there's that many that are doing that well with you know, kind of offering super healthy food. Even and in then it's successful. In
0: Texas and in yeah. Kansas City, and it's great to see that happen. Uh-huh.
1: How many more
0: are you looking to open? We'll see once once you know things normalize. Uh-huh. We'll
1: keep doing it. That's cool. Yeah. That's good to have a. Yeah. robust commercial enterprise. Yes, that's been fun. You know, offering healthy items for people, good for you. All right, thanks, man. We'll okay. come back and talk to me again sometime. I'd love appreciate to. it. okay. All right, appreciate good. it. Peace, plants. <laughs>
0: plants, yes. Yes.
1: <laughs> that's it for today. Thank you for listening.